Brian here. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Gobi More podcast. At Gobi More, our mission is simple. We want you to chase your dreams. Our apparel is designed to be a constant reminder of your commitment. This podcast aims to give you the motivation and mindset to get started and keep going. Today, John and I speak with the founder of the Nephrotic Syndrome Foundation, Andy Calloway. We've had quite a few guests on the show who've shared their experience with kidney disease and the challenges they faced as patients and transplant survivors. While there's a lot of room for improvement for kidney disease patients, there's a shocking lack of support for parents of children with kidney disease. When Andy's son was diagnosed with nephrotic syndrome, she didn't have a support group to turn to. Her experience led her to create the Nephrotic Syndrome Foundation, which works to support families, educate the community, and fight nephrotic syndrome. With no known cure, a diagnosis is literally life-changing for both patients and their loved ones. NSF works to lift each family up via financial and emotional support. One of their projects is called Backpacks for Hope, and it includes a backpack filled with items to support a newly diagnosed child. They've given out hundreds to date, and their waiting list continues to grow. After this podcast, we encourage you to check out nephroticsyndromefoundation.org to learn more about their amazing work. And now, here's our conversation with NSF founder, Andy Calloway. All right, Andy Calloway, welcome to the Go Be More podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Hi, Andy. How are you? Hi, John. How are you? Good to see you. I'm so happy to have you on our show and to dive into your story. This is going to be so fun. So fun. I'm excited. Yeah. Ryan is going to jump start us on the questions and stuff. But before we do, I just want to say, I know that you guys are working on your own podcast. And when that is ready, I'm so honored that you guys interviewed me and I'm excited to share <laughs> the interview that you guys did with me. So I just want to say I'm excited that you guys are going down this path, similar path that we've been on for a while. And it's a great way to tell stories. And of course, we're so happy that you guys are you're joining us to share your story on our podcast. That's because I think it's an amazing story and, and with everything that you're doing. Yeah, thank you. I, I look to you guys. I think that the podcast format's really powerful. So we're excited to kind of offer that to our community too. Yay. Perfect. Well, Andy, before we get into Nephrotic Syndrome Foundation and all the work that you guys are doing there, can we start a little bit earlier and say maybe, you know, for you as a kid growing up, sort of, can you tell us a little bit about where you come from? Yeah, I love that question that, you know, you don't get off, you don't get asked that these days very much. That's true. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. I, yeah. So I, I grew up in Davis, California, so Northern California. Yeah. And yeah, not too far away from here. My dad is, was a professor at UC Davis. He actually taught neurophysiology and my mom was an artist, is an artist. So we grew up in just college town. My parents had just a really unique property. They had purchased like four and a half acres. And really my dad just kind of, you know, created everything was on it. They moved this crazy old Victorian house over to the property. Really? And, um, wow. Yeah. So I kind of grew up in, you know, in a college town, but with sort of a unique experience out there. Acres, did it, was it kind of wild or did, did your dad like kind of grow stuff on it? Or I'm just curious. Yeah, how, how it was kind of in between those things. Between those things. <laughs> oh, wow. yeah. So it was this old Victorian farmhouse. Actually, my husband and I got married there, but it was this, this house that they moved there, you know, beautiful pool and a couple orchards he put in on the property, cool. And, oh, cool. but definitely not like a perfectly manicured 
property. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So did he uh, have experience growing stuff, or is it just was he just learning as he was doing no, it? No, totally, just making it up as he as he went. Right. That's kind of cool. That's kind of yeah. cool. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, what was your thing? Did you have a Did you have a club or a sort of a sport or anything that you were particularly focused on as as a child? Yeah. So, growing up, I was a gymnast, and I was super. So many gymnasts. Sorry to cut yeah. you off, Andy, but I feel like you're like the fourth guest who's like, "Oh yeah, I did gymnastics." I'm like, "Wow." Yeah. Just, yeah. Really I actually credit it for a lot. It's so funny to go kind of dig back into these like original yeah. memories because I really, you yeah. know, my my mom and dad actually say that. So much of what they see me go through now, they think I kind of fostered and developed back then. Mm-hmm. But oh. I spent my youth, like second grade to like maybe eighth or ninth grade as a gymnast, working out in the gym, you know, right after school for like four or five hours every day. And, wow. you know, it was no, no Olympic hopeful <laughs> plans there, but still yeah. a lot of intense work, you know, really developed my, my work ethic and I had a couple injuries, you know, a couple broken bones that happen oh when you're a gymnast. And, you know, it's so funny because I never really connected that with my, you know, what I go through now, you know, with my son and yeah. our journey. But my mom always said that she thought that one of the reasons I was able to kind of cope so much or so, so well with, not that I feel like I coped well, but um, <laughs> with, with what Wilson yeah. has had to go through and just kind of the hard knocks we faced is because we had, I had to kind of deal with a lot, even though they were just broken bones, you know, it wasn't a devastating injury, you know, as an athlete, John, mm-hmm. especially, you know, you, you break your arm, you're out for the, you know, three or four months, you just kind of got to pick yourself up and figure out get what, started you know, again. Yeah. yeah, get started again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. Can I ask real, just generally, did you have a specialty where like, what event did you like the most when you were a gymnast? Yeah, I gosh, that's a great question. I can probably rule out the ones I didn't love. I did not love vault. I did not love <laughs> bars. Probably, probably beam somewhere, really? somewhere. Yeah. Wow, that's so cool. That's that's. I feel like that's the hardest one. I don't know. I was going to say that too, but then I thought, you know what? Those bars seem terrifying. And then I thought, I know. well, and you know, the vault seems really hard. So I don't know. <laughs> Gymna- gymnasts are seriously phenomenal athletes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It yeah. takes a lot. Yeah. But yeah. It, you know, I, I really believe like it really taught me so much, it taught me a lot of strength. It taught me, you know, a lot of just, you know, you're capable of doing so much. Right. And yeah. so well, determination we, and all that. We always like one of the things we talk about a lot is sort of transferable lessons that you can take from one field to another. And you don't mm-hmm. necessarily do something with the idea of transferring the skill later. You just do it because you want to do it. You enjoy it. You're, you you want to be good at it. But it's only later that you sort of connect the dots and realize, oh, actually, all of that like discipline I gained by doing all those practices kind of defined yeah. an aspect of my personality or an aspect of my lifestyle now, right? You're going to make me cry. I, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. that's the way I feel about running, right? Because running for me was, I think I was good at it and I stumbled into it. And I don't think I figured it out right away. But as I started to sort of figure it out, Again, it was later. It wasn't like I was, when I figured it out, I didn't say to myself, oh, great. Now that I've figured some of this stuff out with running, this will help me in my life. I just sort of enjoyed being a better runner. And then later it was like, oh, you know, I can probably use this exact same approach to, I don't know, learning a language or getting up to speed on the stuff I need to learn at my work or something like that. And and so I can connect the dots a lot now. And it's, it's one of those things I try to talk about. If I talk to younger runners, for example, it's like just... You won't see it. You're not going to appreciate it, but you're developing all of these really amazing skills that you're going to have for the rest of your life. 
the more you know, serious you take it, right? It's funny because I've trained some uh, young athletes right now. And I mean, it's funny. There's nothing that make, to, to make you feel old than working <laughs> with younger people all of a sudden. Like, it's one thing to be getting older. It's another thing to have kids. But when you're actually coaching other people's kids and mentoring other people's kids, then, then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Now I'm old because I'm like coaching these young female soccer players, right? These collegiate yeah. athletes and some of these young, young, a few young men that are high school cross country runners. And I'm sitting there going, I feel like a dad. I feel like, <laughs> I actually really feel like a dad now, even though I'm a dad and a stepdad, I'm like, I'm telling these because of what I'm telling them. And I'm sitting there going, gosh, all the stuff that I would say are here from my coaches. Uh, when I was uh, grow, gr- going through the sports, you know, experience and really diving, going through it. And I'm going, oh, I sound like my coach, <laughs> you know, but yeah. it's like you, you, there is all this stuff that you learn. And then all you want to do when you get older, I, I think most adults, it's like, you just want to give it back to the kids. You want to tell them, okay, this is what you, you know, what you should know. And this the funniest thing though, the look in their eyes, they go, yeah, you could tell me all that, but I'm still going to do whatever I'm going <laughs> to do. Right. And I'm going to learn because experience that's is right. the only thing that's going to really get me to listen. Yeah. But it is funny how much we try to share and impart what we've gained from those experiences as formative years. And, Man, it's just so funny. It is fun to talk about it. It's wonderful to see you light up. Yeah. As we're talking about it, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. This is a <laughs> really big deal, you know? Yeah. So you said you did, you did do the gymnastics up to ninth grade, and obviously you loved it. What did you transition into after that? Then if you stopped right around that time? Yeah. So I, you know, I just wanted to kind of be a part of everything with everybody else. Mm-hmm. And gymnastics is kind of isolating. You know, it's like an mm-hmm. individual sport. Really, there were a few people, but it wasn't really a part of your school. I really wanted to be part of the softball team. Oh, cool. <laughs> I, I really cannot throw a ball. Like, I seriously <laughs> cannot throw a ball at all. It's not my sport. But I just wanted so badly to be part of that little group of people. And, um, yeah. So I, I kind of explored for a little while. I did, I did a lot of track, actually. That was a good – track was hey. a really good – yeah, track was a great I – I really enjoyed that, too. I, um, yeah, Endur- I kind of sprinting or endurance so, stuff. You know, it's or? funny too because that actually really makes me think about kind of my niche. It's like yeah. I'm I'm kind of talented, but I'm also kind of hardworking. And so if you combine those two things, or really hardworking, kind of talented, really hardworking. So if you combine those two things together, I was really good at like the, you know, three hundred hurdles and like the the four hundred. You know, like, yeah, yeah, I wasn't fast enough to be like a 100 sprinter. Right, I was never right. going to win that race. But if you combine that or maybe the 800, you know, you combine those, those like middle distances. That was kind of my niche. Yeah, you found, you found <laughs> the really, really hard events. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to if you don't, if you don't have the speed, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. great. You know, it's so, funny though, oh, is, oh. is, I was just going to say, Brian's right. Like, I, just, just to put it out there so that anybody that doesn't know, the 300 hurdles, 400 meter hurdles, and the 800 meters, 400 meters, like those three events kind of like in the middle of all yeah. the short and long distance. Yeah. Those three events are considered like, okay, you are tough cookie if you're doing <laughs> those events, especially the 300 and 400 meter hurdles. Yeah. Those are well, tough. Really yeah. Like I said, yeah. you know, you can only, can't really do much about your speed. You got an end there. So I had to find another. <laughs> Hey, no, that's Another amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. So what did you find yourself doing after high school? 
So after high school, um, I went to college at UC Santa Barbara, which loved best, just great place, great experience. Really enjoyed my time there. I, after college, so in college, I studied political science and economics. And after college, I actually kind of ended up getting a job before I graduated college. As okay. th- at an accounting firm, mm-hmm. one of the big, at the time, big six accounting firms. Yeah. So I um, headed up to San Francisco and, you know, worked at one of the KPMG. Oh, yep. yeah. Yeah. And I had a great time there. It wasn't really like, you know, it wasn't necessarily what I would pick as a passion. Right. But I got some really good experiences. I got to work in kind of like a high-powered environment, which I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Travel a lot, do a lot of things, and really just kind of hone my skills as an adult. Mm-hmm. So I like that, were, yeah. When you were in school and, and thinking about what to do, did you have a clear plan? Or were you sort of just enjoying school and open to whatever came next? You know, I, I, had a, I thought I had a plan. Mm-hmm. So in hindsight, <laughs> sounds like me. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you kind of you got to put your stake in the ground somewhere. Yeah. And I, I'm definitely a planner. I like to know. I, you know, it might not be the right plan, but I like to know what's coming. And I'm definitely not one of those people who kind of can just like float through. Like my sister, she just floated through school with really no plan. And actually, looking back, like you know, there's my mom and my dad. My mom's an artist. My dad's a super logical professor. Mm-hmm. And I definitely fall to that side. I like to know what's coming next. So, right. yeah. so I, I kind of, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I think I took the job without really knowing what I was signing up for just because it was a job. But in hindsight, again, like you said, you know, I, I love it because it gave me such a powerful foundation. And I tell, I tell young people this all the time. Again, mm-hmm. we just hired an intern and I find myself telling her the same thing. I was like, you know, finance just is such an important background to have. And if you yeah. have it, you can do whatever you want because, and I, I really credit so much of what we've been able to do to the, the foundation that I got through that. You know, mm. I call some of those things multiplier skills where like yeah. you learn a skill and then you find that it connects to literally everything else you want to do in your life. And the more of those skills you can develop, the more you can patch them together in combinations in different situations and the more you can sort of apply them to solve a problem, a new problem that you didn't expect. Totally. And I, I agree, like not being an expert in finance and stuff, it's an area where I can tell like, oh, I, if I knew this better, it would make solving this a little bit more <laughs> simple, a little bit simpler, a little bit easier. But, uh, but I think that's one of the things you gain out of the experience. You know, you start, you take a job just to take a job and right. you got to start somewhere. So you, you start and you try to pick the best thing in your, in the available opportunities and, and then learn the, the, the valuable skills you can learn on the job. And I, I really believe, and it's actually, I, I'm going to say this cause it's, it's a little bit different in Japan where I live and, and, and culturally it's a little bit harder to, to what's the word bounce between careers, like right. change careers, mid-career, right? But in America, it's, it's expected that you're going to work somewhere for a couple of years and then you're probably going to leave and go work at another company. I think I saw a stat that said something like people have an av- work for an average of like 12 companies in their, in their lives now or something. Yeah. Like that. Oh, I, thought, I, I, I think that's, that's actually changed, Brian, too. I don't know when you last read that because I think I feel like that might be crazier now because people are bouncing all over the place. And yeah, it's like so, part of the culture. It's like three to four months you're changing to a new job. Because you're looking for something different. People, it's not weird for a lot of employees to look at your resume and go, well, I mean, you don't have to put everything on there. But if you were to put everything on there, they would see that you're kind of like a lot of people are on a journey. They're really looking for like that company 
that they can believe in, that they can yeah. find meaning in the work. Because a lot of people, surveys have shown that people don't want just a job. They want to make a difference. Totally. It's so weird. But like that's now the, the standard by which people search for work because the pay doesn't seem to mean right. as much if their soul is suffering, you yeah. know? I, well, I, I feel like that's what's happened recently. So I yeah. think it's changed from what it once was where it's like, oh, stick at your job for 10 years and that'll look really great on a resume. Yeah. People don't care what that it's looks like It's kind of concerning if you, you've been at your job for <laughs> I think it's the exact opposite. I mean, it can be, not always, but it's, no, it's one of those right. things you want to make sure you're constantly growing and you're in the place you're supposed to be. Yeah. How, mm-hmm. long, how long were you at KPMG? So I was there for about four years. Mm-hmm. And then it was just the dot-com boom. So I left to go do, I actually left to be the director of finance for a startup company. Okay. And again, that was just one of those things where, you know, you and a couple other people, I mean, this is like a, it wasn't a super small startup company, but you and a couple other people are basically making it up as you go along. So I learned a lot there. I really met some amazing people and was in charge of a lot of stuff (laughs) at a really young age, you know? And so I really had a great experience there. I did a lot of kind of like big projects and stuff that I learned just, you know, so much really just kind of about like, you can do it. Like you can do hard things. Yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, we're going through that with Gobi Moore a little bit as well. You work in a big company and there's a very defined role and you know exactly what you're doing. And then you go to do a startup and, and it's like, well, here's everything that needs to be done. And here's the number of people we have to do it. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> it's, the totally. greatest, it's the greatest thing in the world though. Yeah. Going through what that, that type of experience. What things did you walk away with? And how long did you actually stay at this startup? And what did you guys do? What were you guys actually trying to do? Oh my gosh. So this was, um, you guys are going to laugh. This is going to completely date me, by the way. So (laughs) I think that the startup company, we went through a couple names, but it was like a secure, it was basically a a high-speed DSL. So it was kind of like Nest, the concept of Nest, but it was based on like high-speed DSL. And so it was like, we sold to restaurants and bars who needed to have kind of like security over their, you know, area, space, yeah. their storefront mm-hmm. over high speed DSL. And I you know, I ran the finance team and yeah. like you do in a startup company, that finance team kind of branched out into a lot of operations. So mm-hmm. I got really good at like, we did a big systems implementation, I think Siebold way back when people, you know, now it's all Salesforce. I know you're right. <laughs> Wow. So I don't know about you either, but it, you know, and I trained, did a lot of training. And so I, it really, you know, and I, I created a lot of financials from basically mm-hmm. nothing. So yeah. So a lot of good experience there. I think I, I finally left that company when, you know, because the startup company or startup industry was kind of tricky. And I think there was a period where I was, I think the actual CFO had left and I was signing my name to the financials knowing that there was, you know, I'm, I'm basically responsible for having a certain amount of payroll in the bank so I can pay our employees. And it was my name going on there. And I was like, you know, I think it might be time for me to leave. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So wow. yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. So, okay. So I'll, at this point, you've had a couple different experiences, big corporate experience, startup experience. What goes next? What, are, do you, are you starting to have a family now or are you sort of? No, not yet. So I, the next two things, so basically I left there. I went to go work at DHL, the shipping okay. company yeah. in there. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. And so I went to work for them. They were based in San Francisco. Well, actually they're based in Florida, Mm -hmm. had an office in San Francisco, which is where I lived. And we had just, the company DHL just acquired Airborne. And so I went up to Seattle to kind of do the merger and acquisition of Airborne. And again, that was super fun. It was just like dealing with big, you know, you're, you're trying to figure out like, well, how are we going to merge this fleet of planes with this huge operations? And wow. yeah, so it was, it was really That's you know, just amazing. Like, you know, the glory of like late night, all nighters with your team and, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> talking about it with the big people at the companies. And so I, I had a great experience there. And then can I ask you real um, quick about yeah. the, the late nights, the all nighter kind of stuff, because I I find when I talk about my work at Apple and before that I worked at a consulting company where we had some projects where we were pulling all-nighters and what what I find is when I t- describe the work sometimes it comes across as kind of negative it's like yeah. oh we were working all night and we were doing all this but actually in my memory of it is not really negative at all like it it's kind of there's a ton of bonding there's a ton of yeah. there's a ton of like I don't know, self-discovery. I don't know the right, the right word for it. You feel so like the commitment to the, to, to the deliverables and stuff. I'm curious how you look back on that experience of, uh, and totally. how, how it connects with you now. Yeah, exactly the same way. I mean, you know, it was kind of like that for us. I mean, I went from basically big six accounting firm where we were working like 70 hours a week to, you know, startup company where we were working like, you know, 80 hours a week to like acquisition. So I kind of just what I did, but definitely when I look back at like those crazy times of, you know, our busy season and accounting or, you know, these acquisitions, we were there all night. There's just so, you know, you're doing something special. And, you know, so that just gives you such a feeling of power and worth and importance Mm -hmm. and capability. Purpose. yeah, purpose. Purpose. As you're saying it, I hear I hear purpose, purpose, totally. purpose. Totally. Like, and you feel like that's you're the doing word. something important, right? Yeah. That's what it sounds like. You're describing it, and I'm like, well, that's pretty important stuff that you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then you do it, it with that, people who you love. You know, you do it with people yeah. who you you know you you may not have chosen to be with, but they have become mm-hmm. you know they they've become truly some of my closest friends, and I still keep in touch with them. You know, you just share. Oh, that's so cool. Much. Yeah. That's cool. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was your second, your DHL, you do the mergers and you yeah. said there was one more? Yeah. So then after that, I left and I went to, I went to help some friends um, start a company that was, then I guess next was like the world of Sarbanes-Oxley. That was what was kind of uh, next. Okay. I don't know if you guys yeah. remember that, but if you were in if you were Apple, you probably remember something about it. Basically it was like the whole Enron issue. And oh. Yeah. There's was, was a CEOs. lot of regulations that you had to sort of yes. build into your, well, it would have affected finance and accounting more than anything, I think. Totally. Yeah. Basically Mm -hmm. it came out of the concept that like, even if you are an executive, you kind of have to have an idea of what's going on in your company, which is a good thing. So, um, (laughs) but anyway, there's obviously a huge new movement. And so I got involved in kind of consulting in there. And so Mm -hmm. um, I had some friends who started up a company to do that. And I went with them to kind of help them get that off the ground. And that was also like crazy hours and, uh, you know, just pretty intense, but you know, same thing, like you're building something and I felt really um, empowered and like just such a sense of purpose. Cause not only were we doing something that never been done before, you know, no one had ever implemented this stuff before. It meant a lot to the people who you were, you know, if you could help these companies navigate it, mm-hmm. it was a big gift to them. And yeah. then it was just a big gift to the friends of mine who I was kind of helping do this with, you know, every time we'd close another client, I felt really like you were helping them do something important. Yeah, so, you're building something new too, right? Yeah, kinda, there's there's a there's this little 
there's just the satisfaction of, you know, the progress that you're making with every yeah. sale. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I want to talk about, about the Nephrotic Syndrome Foundation, but obviously before that, we need to talk a little bit about your family because it comes out, my understanding yeah. is it all comes out of your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about how, maybe I guess, you know, about your family in general and then how that led to the creation of the Nephrotic Syndrome Foundation? Yeah. So I am married to my husband, Tucker. We live in the East Bay, California, in Alamo, just a little outside of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And we have two kids, Wilson and Lila. So Wilson's 14 now and Lila, my daughter's 12. Mm -hmm. This whole journey started when Wilson was about six. So I guess, you know, early on, just to connect back to where we were, I was working at that company, doing that consulting, working crazy hours, decided we were ready to have a family, kind of pulled back from that and stayed home when I got pregnant with my son, Wilson, and just kind of living life and enjoying, you know, living the dream, just Mm -hmm. really, uh, we moved from San Francisco out to the East Bay, which is where we live now. And everything was just, you know, just... Can I ask a real quick question? You you were working crazy hours and then you pulled back because you got pregnant. Did you put yeah. your, did you put your energy into something else at that time or was it really just about the kids? Yeah, so I did. So I well, it's so funny because I kind of knew I I was like, well, I could work two hours, you know, two days a week, and and I just kind of knew the way that my personality is. I either had to be like in or out. Yeah, <laughs> and I, yeah. I remember telling Tucker too. I was like, you know, Tucker, I. I think that I should be out because I think like, I know that I will give my job everything it needs. I know I will give my kids everything that they need, but I have a feeling that that last category, which may be my marriage, not intentionally, but I just know that like, you know, that's just sometimes when you're in the moment, when you're in, yes. you're so dedicated to everything, you know, it's just not, sometimes that nurturing that takes the greatest dedication and you know, uh, my life right now, I, I, without getting into too many details, but that's the, like, this is the, the exact like challenge of the three yeah. balls in the air and making sure each one gets enough attention. It doesn't get dropped. Totally. Right? Like yeah. I, 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 I take full responsibility for that. I, I take all the blame. <laughs> I'm like, Brian, I need you. <laughs> no, I, I, was, I, I joke with Brian. I said, yeah, I, I owe you one, man. I'm asking for a lot, man, you know, cause this is, this, what we're doing is like kind of like my brainchild, man. And he's, he is, uh, he's, I said, boy, I, the, the heap of praises he will receive for the rest of his life from me, uh, or at least well, for the rest of my life from, from me is, is you couldn't even measure it, you know? Well, it's, it's, sometimes it takes that to do big things. Yeah. But it, it, it's funny. It does. It's, it's amazing. You had that awareness to bring that up and mention mm-hmm. that, that, that shows you how much you really do love your husband and how much you do cherish your marriage to have that foresight and to recognize <laughs> About yourself. Yeah, I think he would, <laughs> he would, like, he would uh, probably I, say. I don't know. <laughs> <He> <laughs> I might say, get lost in this. I know. He would say the yeah. Nephronic Syndrome Foundation has completely surpassed any job I would have had ever before. But, yeah, that might oh, be the case, right? Yeah, yeah but okay. <laughs> so anyway, basically, Wilson, then we get to, so, so I, I kind of pulled back from my job and my career just to focus on kind of being home and, yeah. you know, raising Wilson and, and Lila. But I did get involved. I definitely needed like an outlet of productivity. Mm-hmm. And I actually got involved in a local charity at the time that focused on um, early childhood literacy. 
And it wasn't necessarily an area that moved me more than any other area. It just happened to be an organization that was kind of in my area with young professionals. It was just kind of there and available. And I tell people I can get behind anything. I, I love everything. I love a good, I love anything. I just think there's so much good out there. I can mm. really find passion and interest in pretty much anything. Uh-huh. So I got really involved in that. I ended up you know, probably spending way too many hours on that. And, you know, it felt really good to be productive. And of course, since it's, you know, you know, you weren't, you weren't really answering to a boss in the way that you were when you're working crazy hours. There's a definite, like less um, significant impact if you couldn't make something happen. But I ended up being chairman for that organization for a year where I learned a lot about things that I now put into practice every day. that's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. What's the, is it, is the, does the, uh, I'm not speaking. Does the organization still exist? No. So they, I know. So they were kind of, it was called Buena Vista Auxiliary and they were an auxiliary of a larger organization called the Assistance League, which Mm. is national and huge and they still exist. But this auxiliary Mm. really just, I think it just, I don't know what happened. What happened for me was I, so I was chairman for a year just as I kind of wrapped up my, year as chairman and was moving on to just sort of like an advisory position on the board of that organization, Wilson was diagnosed. And so, you know, after I, I remember so vividly like that piece, and I, I haven't really talked about that actually probably in seven years, but, mm. you know, I remember not really knowing what was just handed to me, you know, mm-hmm. when we first received the diagnosis for Wilson, which I'll, you know, I'll share. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you about it. Cause did you know that Wilson had a problem or did it, did it just come out of a routine checkup and it was completely out of the blue? No, it came out. It was kind of like basically one morning in October, he woke up and his eyes were puffy. And mm. I was like, that's kind of weird. And that's just, that's just weird. And so, right. you know, I like, call my best friend. That's what you do. I call my best yeah, friend. Yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah. Wilson's eyes are puffy. What do you think it could be? And she's like, oh, it's detergent. You got to change all your detergent. Got to use something <laughs> else. Oh, oh, no. so, so I, you know, we, we went through all the mom things. It didn't seem severe. It just seemed like his eyes were super puffy. And so I, I did. I changed all the sheets, changed all the detergent. And eyes were still puffy. And it would kind of go away toward the end of the day. But when mm-hmm. you would wake up in the morning, it would be puffy. So, Basically, I didn't let too many days go by. I think four or five days went by and then I took him to the um, doctor. And actually, this is kind of one of those interesting things. My husband, Tucker, happened to be off work. So Tucker took him to the doctor, which is not our normal like division of of responsibilities. Right. And he took him to, it wasn't our normal doctor. It was someone who was on call. Mm -hmm. And of course, during the week I had just been, I had been kind of like Googling, like, swollen eyes. You know, I felt like his tummy looked a little swollen and, and there's not good mm. things were not coming up. Right. Yeah. If you start searching online, you're yeah, get totally. all, bad things. <laughs> all bad things. And I just kind of knew in my, in my heart, kind of knew something was wrong, mm-hmm. like more than just allergies. And so, but, but I, so I said, Tucker, you, you know, you take him, it's good for you to take him. So I took him and the doctor said, Oh, it's allergies. Here's some Benadryl. So, you know, we brought him home and then the weekend we're, you know, going through the weekend. And basically that Sunday, we went out to the Lawrence Hall of Science out here in mm-hmm. the area and had a great day. And he wasn't looking very good, just a little puffier than he had been. Yeah. And we stopped. I know, John, I bet you that I mean, mm-hmm. just, I know you never got to that point, really. But just like the swelling is a is a symptom of kidney failure. Yeah. And so yeah. I mean, pretty much anybody in the medical profession kind of knows that. 
So yeah. we ended up stopping after our day to get a milkshake, some fries. And we, you know, of course, when your kidney's not working, <laughs> a hamburger and french fries is like the worst thing in the world. And so, yeah. you know, we get home and by the end of that night, we, he was really, really swollen. And we knew something was wrong. And so we went to the emergency room. Right. And it's an easy diagnosis once you're there. It, most hospitals, like, you know, it's, it's different case for some, some people who live out in a rural or, you know, remote area. They don't have um, doctors who are as versed in this, but it truly is a really simple test. You know, it's just a urine test. It's not even right. a blood test. And so anyway, it was, we were probably there for a couple hours, but by the time the evening was done, they diagnosed him with nephrotic syndrome. Wow. And, you know, they kind of said to us, well, here, you know, he'll take basically 60 mil, you know, here's a course of steroids. It's, you know, six years old at the time, you know, here's like 60 milligrams of prednisone, just go ahead and take this and follow up with like a more, you know, follow up with Oakland Children's Hospital or UCSF in the morning or in a couple of days. And, you know, they said he's probably six years old. He's boys probably got this disease called minimal change disease, which is one of the underlying diseases that cause nephrotic syndrome. Mm -hmm. Nephrotic syndrome itself is really technically a grouping of symptoms. So idiopathic nephrotic syndrome um, can be caused by a few, it, may, it can be caused by a handful of diseases. The most common is this one called minimal change. They said, you know, he may, this may never happen to him again. It might be one and done. Um, here's this prescription and kind of like, good luck, you, you know, and we walked mm -hmm. out really feeling like we, you know, when, when I walked in the hospital, I thought he had leukemia. And so right, right. Oh. when I walked out of the hospital that night, I felt like, okay, this is good. This is actually good news. I'm, I'm actually, I got I the good. I know what yes. to do. I have a plan. I've got yeah. <laughs> the good end of the like terrible things that can happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, <laughs> then it was kind of, so basically it was, you're given this, this course of medication for three months and, you know, it was a really crazy couple few weeks. We got about six weeks into the steroids, which I don't know if you guys have ever had to take steroids for anything. I have not. They, okay. So it's crazy. So they typically give like an adult, you know, who gets a really bad case of poison ivy, like five milligrams a day to, to kind of cause that calm the inflammation. So here's a six year old on 60 <clears throat> milligrams a day. Mm. And it's just like dealing with a monster. I mean, yeah, a six year old. Hulk or something. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's, it really is. I mean, we would oh, no. uh, just getting through those first six weeks were so hard. And okay. So and I one yeah. question, sorry. Like I, when, you, when you think about athletes taking steroids, there's symptoms and there's one of the symptoms is like anger, for example, like emo inability to control emotions and stuff. I mean, were you experiencing very similar things with your son? Yeah. Okay. So oh, we um, wow. just, and you know, and he'll still tell me, you know, even though he has to take him sometimes now that he's older, he'll say like, mom, you know, I, I was up all night, you know, even at 13 or 14, he'll be like, I was up all night crying. I, I, I don't know why I couldn't mm -hmm. stop or, you know, and he doesn't usually share these things with me until like months after the fact, but right. he'll say like, I was sitting in class. I literally my, my ears are buzzing. Like there's a ringing in my head. I can't even listen. To, I don't even hear the teachers. I can't even hear what they're saying. Right. So, and at six, you know, I, I would talk sometimes about like when I pulled into that kindergarten parking lot and I got him to school, I mean, I had already been through a war that morning. I mean, right. and here are all these other moms and I, I just felt like I was so alone. Like I was living a mm. completely, I was living on a different planet than they mm -hmm. were, you know, and and I, you know, there was, I mean, I probably cried in the parking lot more often than not 
you know, oh, it yeah. just the, what we had gone through and, you know, we would, we would set out, you know, on a weekend, we'd set out to take he and my daughter on a, on a bike ride and we'd be all set to go. And, you know, that's not easy to begin with as a mom to get your, you know, six no, year old, four year old down on a bike that's ride. A, right? That's a fun, that would be a fun conversation. I would love uh, to just do a whole podcast about, okay, how hard is it to get your kids out the door? And it never changes. Totally. No, how, no, how, no matter how old they get, you're like, it's still difficult. But, yeah, but anyway, so you guys are in Hulk it, mode. It's probably. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. We so would, you guys we, are getting ready yeah. to go. So we would get ready to go. We'd be like, out the door you know we'd be my dog in one hand and we'd and you know we'd get like six six feet and he just decide he doesn't want to come doesn't want to mm. go complete temper tantrum complete meltdown and you know wouldn't go forward wouldn't go backwards yeah and you know the doctors would always say like you got to treat them just the way you do any other mm. child and i gotta tell you as a mom who's going through it i mean i appreciate that <laughs> But it's just not possible. I mean, you literally have to look out for the safety of your kids. I mean, you have to, you know, you just got to, it's kind of one of those things that you don't even know how you did it because yeah. Yeah. you just, you just had to, you just had to call on something crazy. Did you have any support at this time? Like uh, external from any organiz yeah, organization? No. I don't even know. So, like well, I mean, the first six months, I couldn't find anybody. I mean, and that really is the origin of the Nephrotic Syndrome Foundation is I was sitting there and, you know, at this time we were at UCSF. I was sitting there with a pediatric nephrologist. He's like in practice. So, you know, he's got, you know, there's a whole group of people out there just like me because he's, he's a pediatric nephrologist, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so he's in business, you know, he's in practice. Yeah. And so yeah. I kept saying to him, I said, where, you know, where, who can I talk to? There must be somebody else just like me. I really need to find another mom. I really need to find another six-year-old boy who's going through this. Here's my information. Please give it to somebody, you know, please connect me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he just kept saying like, there, there's really nothing. There's really, I don't know about anything. And, and I think also one of the, there's two other things that make it so hard. I mean, one is just that like, HIPAA is a real challenge yeah. and you know, he is not really, so he can take my information and give it to somebody, but you know, he's there for a 30 minute appointment with me where we're talking about life and death issues. And so then he leaves and he goes to a transplant, right? And yeah. he then leaves there and he goes to another, you know, transplant evaluation. So it's like, he's dealing with major things and he just, you know, he's, his job is not to connect. Yes, he, right. It's hard. So logistically, systemically, it's hard. And then, mm. you know, the other thing that's such a challenge with the nephrotic syndrome is like, you know, what they told me that first night in the hospital, like he may never have this again. I mean, some people have a very easy journey with this mm. disease. Mm. Other people have a double, you know, transplant. I mean, you know, so you don't want to necessarily connect a new mom, a mom who's new to the disease and her son who's six with somebody who maybe has failed, you know, five different treatments and is really in a bad spot. And so not only right and so yeah that could finding, really throw you for a loop ment yeah. ment from a mental health standpoint it totally. could really freak somebody out yeah yeah so we we ended up i mean that really is the that's that's where it all started was just you know we we did end up finding another mom who had a son who was diagnosed with the same disease not the same age you know a few years older and she was about a, an hour away and we connected with her and, you know, from the beginning, we, that, that was, that was really good. I mean, it fed what I needed to, it, it, it was what I needed. Mm -hmm. And I got really involved right away in advocating for research and that, or she was organizing a walk 
for an organization that really focuses on pharmaceutical treatments for nephrotic syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I got really involved right away in that effort. And I was dedicated to it for years. And But I think, I think after a little while, I kind of came back to that need that I found myself. You know, I just, everything kept coming back to like, me as a mom and that one moment and not being able to find someone else and just the patient. And so I, after a few years, I kind of realized that what was my, you know, what moved me so much was really serving that mom and that dad mm-hmm. and that patient, and the family mm-hmm. and the child and the sibling and the, you know, that until we can find a, a cure, you know, making sure that we're serving that unit, that family and that need. And so then in 2017 was when I really we founded this organization to fill that hole. Mm. That's an amazing thing to, I think, be inspired by when, as it relates to something like this, because, you know, you look at some of the uh, other players in, in, in the arena as it relates to kidney disease from awareness to research and, and seeking, you know, better treatments, long-term treatments and things like that. There's different players and everybody seems to kind of be, to a certain extent, playing certain roles as, as it relates to trying to either find unique treatments, maybe working on like a artificial kidney or just trading, just focusing purely on awareness. And, and, and it's funny, like each organization plays these different roles. But the thing that is really cool about you guys is that, you know, your foundation, Andy, is the fact that you're like, mm, well, yeah, we need to talk about all that stuff and we can create awareness, but you create awareness through connection. Yeah, you know, me, and that's, that's a big thing that's missing. Yeah. It's, like, it's about serving the people when you talk about totally. charity. And you guys are doing really cool stuff with your foundation as it relates to the, the most important aspect of these challenging situations, these challenging issues, the people dealing with them. I mean, for me, it, it starts there. And that is yeah. the foundation that you need to build upon. I mean, mm-hmm. we, I'm a patient mom. And after a few years, I realized like I, I come from a pretty strong foundation, you know, like I talked about my gymnastic years. Yeah. I, mean, I felt prepared to deal with a lot. I've got a family that's here to help me. I've got a great network of friends. And yet I felt like I really needed support. And I just kept thinking, if I need support, what about the single dad out there? What about the you know, the mom who's losing her job because she has to stay home with her child who's sick. And so we, you know, and I just also from a strategic standpoint, I just felt like, you know, this is, this is one of those crazy diseases that is really, it's, it's really hard to raise money for a rare disease. And that's Mm -hmm. known in the community. I mean, of charities and nonprofits and rare diseases, it's known, it's extremely hard to make an impact in the rare disease community because you don't have very many people who are affected. That's right. So, you know, and, you know, we talk about like, what are the challenges that we faced? I mean, that is one of our deep challenges, which is that, that it's hard to find people who feel as moved as you do to, yes. to take this cause on. Can I ask you a kind of, this is a very general question. I am way newer to kidney disease and, and kidney conditions than, than you and John both. So, but, but I assume some of our listeners are as well, like me. So kidney disease, it, there's a lot of people who suffer from kidney disease in the US. It's, it's in the millions, perhaps, yeah. right? Like one in seven. 37, numbers, 38 right? million right now. And, and so, but the nephrotic syndrome is a very rare disease. So what is the connection or is nephrotic syndrome a, a one, one type of kidney disease or are they te- technically separate things? Can you kind of explain? 
a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, the way I describe nephrotic syndrome is an autoimmune disease that affects the kidneys and stops them from working. Okay. And we, the nephrotic syndrome is technically a grouping of symptoms caused by an underlying disease. So minimal change disease is what Wilson has and FSGS, focal segmental glomerular yep. sclerosis. There's a few others, IgA nephropathy. There's a few other that others that go into this category called nephrotic syndrome and nephrotic syndrome is, I mean, it is considered a kidney disease okay. um, because it manifests itself in the kidneys. Right. Okay. <laughs> However, I don't believe that it starts in the kidneys. It starts with something in your system that's off kilter. And so, you know, our, our goal actually is a world without nephrotic syndrome, you know, and I, I do want to make that point, which is that, you know, even in the mission of our foundation, you know, we, we aim to support those who are diagnosed with kidney or with nephrotic syndrome, their families and the ongoing search for a cure, mm-hmm. but we do it in that order. You know, that is our that is our set of priorities. And so, you know, we choose to serve the child first, their family second, you know, and then the ongoing search for a cure is really important. And I believe that the answer to that is not going to be found in the kidney. I think it's going to be found. I mean, that's just my personal opinion. No, sure, but sure. I, no, but that's a good, yeah. Yeah. I just, I think it's, you know, it definitely falls in the category of kidney disease, but it, is caused by kind of like your system sort of getting off kilter and then your body sort of reacting to itself in a not appropriate pattern. That makes more sense. So yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, and that's, I think that's a, uh, I think that's a fair thing to say. And because there's a lot of external factors, there's a lot of external factors that impact uh, our health, all of us, you know, and I think that we're, we're very unaware of the impact that, you know, I mean, it's funny, I'm sitting in front of this big old computer and I got a microphone in my face and I got a phone next to me. And I, I mean, there's all this stuff emitting all these different things, right? And, and it's not that I'm saying that those things are bad, but what I'm saying is there's things in the air all the time. And if we don't start realizing that our environment from the technology to the relationships to the food we eat to what's being sprayed in the air, all this stuff actually impacts us all the way down on a cellular level. And when stuff starts happening on a cellular level, things start happening in our body and it's trying to figure out it's a bit, the human body is phenomenal, but it can only do so much when we start throwing in all these other factors that we're like, okay, here's another thing that you have to now figure out how to solve for and still function at the highest level that you're capable of. Right. No, it's going to have issues, you know? Right. And, and so I think that my interpretation of that response is, is that, Hey, there's a lot of things going on that we have to account for that we should be trying to combat with really good health, really good yeah. health, uh, nutrition and good decisions, really understanding all uh, different variables that can be impacting our health in many ways that can lead to certain things that may and to some extent be can be minimalized right. and are better handled, if not prevented completely. You yeah. Know? Andy, do you have uh, like strict regimens and stuff that your son has to follow in order to maintain his, his sort of kidney health, like as far as diet or exercise or any of these kind of things? Yeah, we, you know, that's such a good question. So we have really been gluten and dairy free for, I mean, I, 
I'll never forget the moment when, so basically this disease is treated with immunosuppressants. So there's the steroids, but then for Wilson, that really didn't even work. And so mm. after six weeks, he relapsed, he relapsed again, really without much sign of why. Normally a relapse for nephrotic syndrome is triggered by anything that triggers the immune system can trigger a relapse. Basically right. what happens mm. is your body, instead of responding to the trigger the way it's supposed to, it turns and attacks the kidneys and they become inflamed and stop working. So that's really the definition of a relapse. And mm -hmm. so he relapsed several times on the prednisone. They gave him a second line medication, which is used for transplant patients called tacrolimus. He relapsed a couple times. So he's on steroids and he's on tacrolimus and he relapsed from that or on that a couple times. So then they prescribed a third course of medication. These are all courses that can be given by themselves to treat the disease right. and he's taking three at once. Mm. And I remember mm. the day that I gave him that third medication, you know, it's got all these warnings on it. It says, do not handle with your bare hands. Like the hospitals <laughs> won't even give it to him. They have to take it down to like the hazmat area. Someone has to suit up. And here I am just like, this is in my kitchen. I'm just giving it to my six year old, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. In addition to all, you know, the other two. So anyway, I never will forget basically just thinking to myself, you know, I, the, at that time, this is seven years ago. Okay. So a lot has changed in the world in seven years. But when I first was kind of exploring this, I asked about diet. I said, you know, I've kind of read some things about being gluten-free, you know, do you think that could make a difference? And the time the doctors really just kind of said like, look, we're, we're trained medical professionals. We see it in a journal. We read the results of the test and then we make a decision and there's been no tests on food. We don't want you to put all your eggs in one basket, you know, basically don't bother. Mm. And I remember thinking, you know, I know I hear that, but I'm just not going to give my child all of these medications and not try. Yeah. Especially because it doesn't hurt you to try that. And so mm -hmm. we, you know, and this kind of goes back to actually, you know, one of the things that connects me so much to your, you know, a lot of what you guys talk about at Go Be More and just your, you know, your concept of just kind of how to get yourself over that hump, you know, setting your bar low so that mm -hmm. you, you know, barriers to entry low so that you can continue. It's, I, I think about that. This is a marathon, not a sprint. And, you know, we started that journey with a lot of grace for ourselves and we've continued it. And most recently, actually, I mean, then there's things like when your child's in a relapse, they have to limit salt. They have to have basically right. no salt. They have to limit water. I mean, they almost have, yeah. you have to watch how much fruit they have because they can't have any water because it will, you know, the water and fruit will cause them to swell up. So there's that. And a lot of patients have to address like potassium and um, all kinds of things, phosphorus. But more recently for us, you know, we, we have been vegan and yeah. And, you know, I, I say that with, you know, I want to say like, I have a 14 year old boy. So 98% vegan. <laughs> you know, we don't worry too That's much amazing. about, yeah. Like, you know, if there's an egg in, in a, in a muffin and it's gluten-free and dairy free, you know, we just, we don't worry too much about that, but we have been, you know, and that was really something that Wilson kind of came up with on his own. We watched a couple of the, you know, current movies that are oh, out there and some good ones. Yeah. It, there's some there good ones. Are. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of where we are. I, I, I just feel strongly that this disease is so crazy. And they say, if you've seen one case of nephrotic syndrome, you've seen one case. I mean, that's what the doctors will say. Like literally there are no two cases that are the same. And so I can attest really, to that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So it's really hard. I mean, it's one of the things that's so hard about it is it, you know, you just, 
you don't know what's ahead. You don't even know what's going on right now. And you're just kind of dealing with this big old game of guess and check. Real quick, the, the Friday Syndrome Foundation then, as you built this, I mean, obviously mm-hmm. it, it got started in 2017 off of your sort of experience and need to connect. There's two things I, I, I assume, I suppose. One is that what started as maybe a local thing has now reached much broader than just your local community because once it's online, you can connect with anybody anywhere dealing with it, right? And I'm curious, how has that community sort of grown? And, and to, to what extent are you sort of finding people that you would probably have never had any opportunity to connect with who are connecting with you? Yeah, it's been so powerful. So this, you know, we started with our little backpacks of hope program. And, you know, I think in 2017, we delivered like 17 backpacks. And then in 2018, we delivered 40 backpacks and they're expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, they're really, they cost a lot. They, we put, you know, they're specific to that child. We include gifts for the siblings. Like there's good stuff in there. I wanted it to Very be cool. really uh, special. Yeah. I wanted it to feel like a gift of like love and light that just magically appear. Gift of hope, right? Ch- like that's yeah, it. yeah, totally. And yeah, I, 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 oh my gosh, you were kidding when you just, I'm holding up my nephrotic syndrome foundation, my water bottle, my little wristband. No, you, you, and, Andy's no joke when it comes to this branding no, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> we, we were just talking about this the other day, but I, your backpacks of hope are so cool. Sorry, we, keep going. I no, just wanted to so show that. Like, yeah. so cool. But then in like, so, you know, basically then I think in 2019, we delivered 155. And this year wow. already, we've delivered over 350 to date. I mean, just this year. Yeah. So, and then, and you know, our big mission this year and with everything that's going on was to, you know, we had had basically this wait list that had just, you know, what happened is you send out 17 and a bunch more people hear about it and they all apply. And so then, Mm -hmm. you know, and so anyway, we think it was 2018 that we sent out some, and I don't know where that hit, but it just blew up. And all of a sudden we had like, you know, the jot form we were using to collect the applications blew up and Uh, we had to change systems and you know we had 200 so basically we went into this year with a wait list even though we were working so hard a wait list of like 226 patients and our our whole goal for this year was to eliminate that wait list so that we could basically meet each child in the time of greatest need which is when they ask or at diagnosis and not have them have to wait and we did we sent out 200 you know we'd send out 100 early in this year and the last month we sent out another 226 and then, you know, they're all received with so much like gratitude and yeah. everyone's posting these beautiful pictures. And now we yeah. have another 230 applications. So, so I, ha- I have a little bit of a crazy story for you, by the way, really quick. Yeah. Lauren Hicks. Oh, I love her. That's my girl, man. <laughs> She's That's so my special. Girl. That's my we, girl. We definitely got to talk about her. Oh my gosh. I... First of all, yeah, she's something else. Her mom is phenomenal. Her daughter is phenomenal. Just, just, uh, I just wanted to say that I saw, I see her on your yeah. stuff, and I said, I don't know if you know, but it was like two years ago. I talked to her. Her mom hit me up on Facebook or something. Yeah. Somehow, no, I saw a thing about a GoFundMe for Lauren, mm. and I donated, and then I left a message, and then her mom. Sent, sent me a message or something like that. And I just said, call me. Yeah. And we got on the phone and it was like, 
kind of like you and me, Andy. Yeah. It was like we talked for three hours. Totally. It was like that. It was early in the morning. They're, they're out there, East Coast. Yeah. And I mean, just seeing the, this is how special what you're doing is, though, is to see this beautiful little girl whose mom was feeling lost, you know, and feeling like, whoa. And then I, and then I call her. And I said, we got this. We're going to figure this out. And that's what I'm on that mission. You know, I, yeah. I, wasn't, I don't say stuff and not do it. And I said, oh, my gosh. And then I talked to her daughter and I'm like, oh, she is just a little angel. This cute little thing, this love lover of life. Clearly, if you follow her on Instagram, she's just like skateboarding and dancing. Yeah, and, I love it. I mean, my goodness. And then I saw that she was connected with you guys at the Nefcure, or, or, I'm sorry, Nephrotic Syndrome Foundation. And I'm sitting there going, oh, this is so great. This little thing deserves all the love and support that she could get. Really? So I just love what you guys are doing because, yes, you are reaching a lot of, of these beautiful children that need what yeah. you're doing. And I am just like, just tickled that we have that very special connection with this beautiful family. Yeah. This wonderful, special little girl. Yeah. We've met, I mean, just to, you know, Brian, your question about like, has it connected us and how have we reached? I mean, you know, for sure that family and mm -hmm. we have most recently, basically the, you know, coronavirus and COVID-19 is pretty much as a nonprofit. We've had to really pivot to, to sum it up, <laughs> um, our normal events are five or 600 people and that's not going to happen. Of right. course, we're extra cautious with immunosuppressed children. And, and so mm. when we looked out at this year and thought about what we're going to do, I mean, delivering those backpacks was one thing just because that's our farthest reaching and, and greatest impact. And then the other was just really you know, digging deep into our virtual offerings and, and really expanding that. And we've created this peer team program, which, I mean, this is one of those things that, you know, it just gives me so much inspiration. These are, you know, basically it's, it, it, this has just completely happened organically. We've connected with these young adults who, you know, John, similar to you have just um, traveled a path of life with this disease and, a lot of them have had a childhood where they were really, really sick and mm. did not see themselves thriving as a child. And they didn't thrive as a child. A lot of them were really in the hospital for a long time. And now they are successful, well-adjusted. I mean, not without their struggles. Trust me. I think everybody who has faced this has some sort of PTSD, mm -hmm. but, but they are thriving. They are contributing members of society. They are actually incredibly strong and inspirational. And so they have really been instrumental. They've really created this peer team program, which is this group of six young adults. The first woman I reached out to is in Seattle. And then the second woman I reached out to is in Boston. And then the third woman I reached out to is in New Mexico. And the fourth one was in the UK. That's and then the fifth one was in Oklahoma. And now we've got one in the Caribbean. And wow, I mean, no wow, talk to me about like power and these, these individuals get on this call and they, I mean, they're supporting each other, but the purpose of this is really for them to have a place to kind of share their story in an effort to give back. And I just think it's such a source of inspiration to younger patients to see them. And yeah. it's also such an inspiration to a mom or a dad, you know, as I'm raising a six-year-old mm. with this disease and now a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old and a 14-year-old. And how do you, how do you contemplate that? You know, what does their life look like? How do you send them through college? How do you, what, 
I don't know. It's not what you planned. Right. Yeah, and, right. and how do you kind of adjust to that? This so it's, it's been so inspiring. much potential, so much power in this because so much of what we believe we can achieve is based off of what we see other people doing. Yeah. Right? And, and that can be as simple as no, I can't have a normal life. Like if you if you have not had a normal life relative to all the people, maybe in your neighborhood or in your school or whatever, yeah. and, and you're, you're the exception and dealing with, especially with a difficult disease. And I think being able to see these uh, examples, it's so important. And it's one of those transferable things I talk about, you know, you, you learn this, uh, in sports, you know, so much of your confidence comes from seeing somebody else do something. You say, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Right. Yeah. And, and that if he can do it, I can do it is such a powerful motivator. And, yeah. and this has, a, I think, a lot of potential to create that. And I actually, I would never have thought about it from the parent perspective because I would have thought about it from the kid perspective, but you're right. Like the, there's, there's so much peace of mind might come to the parents by seeing, totally. look, look at all these perfectly adjusted, like, like doing great examples that I can now have a peace of mind that my kid, you know, yeah. I mean, when we created it, we didn't, we didn't start to provide inspiration to me or parent. Literally I I created it, you know, to provide inspiration to a younger child and to give those young adults fulfillment. You know, those, those young adults, I still consider part of our constituency. They Mm -hmm. still need support. They need support to feel like they have, gone through something and they need to, to share that. And so to give them a place to share that equally to help the, as equally important as helping the younger children. But I did not anticipate it being a sense of, or a, a source of support for myself or any other caregiver. And it wasn't until I heard their stories and I just realized how inspirational it was that it kind of opened itself up to this whole new benefit. Yeah. Can I ask you like right now, um, when you look at the state of, your foundation and nephrotic syndrome in general and stuff like what, what if, is there a message or, or an, or a, an important fact about this situation that you would like to share with, with anybody listening that, that to help raise awareness about the state of, of this disease or the state of, I don't know, the medical, what do I want to say? The medical practice in dealing with it? Well, yeah, the healthcare support, how the healthcare system is handling it right now. That's like the big question. Like, wh- how do you see it from your experience, from the the perspective of other of other parents and the and the children dealing with this, you know, autoimmune disorder? I know. This is like this is like that. I don't even know. This is like the tip of such a huge iceberg. <laughs> Fair <Yeah>. enough. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, really, I feel like one of the reasons that we are so effective in what we do is because we are serving a need that's, that's never been addressed. You know, no one's right. ever served these individuals as people before. And, you know, they don't fit into any category. They don't have cancer. They don't have asthma. They don't have, you know, they're, they're somewhere in between and there's no place for them to go when they, a lot of them can't get support through disability because there's just so much conflict. There's really no place for them. And because it's rare, I feel the sense of responsibility to address it, to serve Mm -hmm. it. And and so I, I think there's one, that's one piece of the iceberg. And then, you know, the other, the other tiny little piece of it, which is again, a, a mountain be it below the ocean there is just that, you know, those doctors, they're treating nephrotic syndrome. They're treating the symptoms. They've got 30 minutes in the office with you. You know, they're talking about like major choices and treatments, right? So you're covering like just the top of what you've got to get done as a parent in that conversation is my child going to die are they going to lose their hair are they going to be able to have children you know can they go 
swimming, you know, those are the things you're covering. And there's so much more that, you know, what they call comorbidities or just these crazy symptoms where I would ask my nephrologist, I would say, and and by the way, I mean, we have like the best, I'm a huge fan of our pediatric nephrologist, but I would (laughs) ask them these questions. They'd say like, you know, has anyone ever relapsed by switching from a generic or a, you know, a brand name to a generic medication? You know, my insurance is trying to get me to switch or have you ever noticed that, you know, is, is dark circles around the eyes a symptom of this? And, you know, a lot of times he'd be like, no, I've never heard of that. And yet we go into this parent community and it is like, absolutely. This is, you know, so it's actually, yeah, that's a big one too. That's a big one too. Cause I've always had these really, really, really dark things under my eyes. And, and, and I wondered for a long time, is this, is, was this one of those indicators? Because I was initially, there was the first initial indication of something was wrong with my kidneys when I was 17. Right. Yeah, I know. I listened to your podcast. And it's John. crazy. That was really and going, yeah. Nobody, everybody kind of just kept brushing it off. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, like you, you look said, good. You, you, you look healthy. It's an allergy. You assume I'm it's running something. fast. I'm doing all this yeah. stuff. Well, you're good. Totally. <laughs> well, I think that there's so much knowledge within parent communities, actually. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting, actually, there's a, probably a lot of avenues of opportunity there because uh, there's a very different thing to live the experience on 24 hours a day versus, versus live it from a, from maybe the, the point of view of, of a doctor, right. Who studied totally. all the statistics and all the research and has all the, and knows all the, the, the chemistry and the body and everything, but maybe isn't doing 24 hours a day seeing how uh, a kid reacts to different factors in the environment, being right. gluten free, being dairy free, some of these other things. Yeah. And I, I actually, it's got me kind of thinking a lot about in many ways, there's probably ways to generate that information in a way that is uh, maybe not strong enough to be classified as like research, but enough to, enough to sort of have, have strong confidence that there's, that there's something there, right? That there's, totally. Yeah. What's, what's the difference between a group of people or a community of people? Let's say you were to survey that group and ask these questions that a doctor would typically ask, but you actually gathered that information and provided that data in a conclusive report based on that information to inform them of the things that they say they study in the lab and they blah, 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 right? And then they write their papers about it. But I'm like, if you're gathering the same type of information from real world results and real experiences and full op- 24 hour observation, you know, what's, what's the difference? Right. There isn't any difference except one person has an MD, you know, an MD and the other, uh, other person's a, a mother and a father fighting to save the child's life. Mm, yeah. I think you guys are a little bit more invested though. Yeah, so I know. Maybe that's the difference. <laughs> so that, what's the difference is that you're more invested, you know, and not to blame the doctor. The doctors no. are not to blame. It's the system. You, you got to look at the system. So it's like we need to support them with information and they need to listen we had this one situation where my insurance, it was kind of what I just mentioned to him, my insurance said they weren't going to cover this medication for Wilson anymore. Mm-hmm. And he'd been on a brand name medication. And I am not particularly particular about brand name versus generic, but he started with this brand name medication. And like I told the doctor, I'm like, I don't care if he started chewing purple bulgum. This seems to be working for him. So we're just going to keep going with what this is. You know, he's going to keep chewing that mm-hmm. purple bubble gum, like whatever it was, yeah. we're not messing with it now. Yeah. And, and so, but my insurance said, this is, they're not changed. You can't get the brand name. It's going to cost like, it was $2,000 a bottle. He had Oof. 
two bottles a month he went through. So I was like, I, look, I'm either going back to work to pay for this medication or we're going to find a way around this. And so, but it, mm. they were basically telling us there's no app, there's no avenue to appeal. There's nothing you can do. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the doctor. I said, have you ever seen a relapse from switching from generic, you know, brand name to generic? And we had a couple second opinions with other doctors who I had to write letters to our insurance company. And I remember the, the medication that they wanted Wilson to start taking was this generic version that was manufactured by um, a company in the Middle East. Again, this is like four years ago, so I'm sure a lot has changed. But at the time, it was manufactured by a company in the Middle East who had been shut down by the FDA for producing medications that were not FDA approved. So here I am talking with this. I started talking from a doctor at this point from Stanford who I was just getting a second opinion. I was just basically going through our, our you know, hoping he would help me write an article about this or a, a letter about this to my insurance company. And I remember he said to me at one point, he goes, you know, you have spent more time researching this one medication than I have spent researching any medication for any of my patients. And I was like, yeah, oh I know. Because... Yeah. You know, if, if we don't get this approved, I will spend more time in the doctor's office in one week than it will have cost me researching this. You know, I might've spent 10 hours researching this. That'll, that'll be what I'll spend in the doctor's office in one week. If this, if I don't get this. And with no real answers. And with no real answers. So it's, it just kind of goes back to like, you were saying there's so much power in, you know, in, in the parent experience and your Mm -hmm. dedication to your child and, Mm -hmm. you know, the doctors are incredibly smart people and they Mm -hmm. know what to do, but they're also coming at this from a clinical standpoint. And there's just a lot that there's a lot of power and strength in that, in the parent experience who's dealing with it every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Andy, as we wrap up, can I ask you, how is Wilson doing today? So Wilson's doing great. I know. (laughs) And I always say that though. It's just, I always have to qualify it because you know, to me, he looks great. He's enjoying all the things that a 14 year old boy should enjoy. Um, well, almost these days, there's a lot of isolation that we deal with because um, kind of over and above what a normal 14 year old is mm-hmm. probably facing right now, just because he's immunosuppressed. He's still on, you know, Celsept, which is one of the stronger immunosuppressants on a little bit of prednisone and we are dealing with a few implications from all the years of that, you know, just growth Mm, delay, mm -hmm, bone density mm -hmm. delay. And so Mm. it's just kind of crazy because your perspective on how that would have been devastating to me to be in this spot seven years ago, I would have said horrible. He's doing horrible. He's, you know, really taking these creating screen medications. He's got all these growth delays and issues. And, and now, you know, my answer to that is, for where we are, I mean, I'm grateful for every day. I am grateful for yeah. all the parts of your body that do work right. And so I, but he looks good. You know, he's thriving in school. He's taking responsibility. I can see him turning in, letting go of a little of the anger that was really there between the ages of six and 13 as you mm-hmm. kind of navigate this change in your life. And so I'm, I'm happy with that. That's, That's wonderful to hear. Can I ask you our last question, which we always end the podcast is, you know, our brand is Gobi Moore. Could you share with us what do the words Gobi Moore mean to you? I mean, John, I saw your, you know, I just somehow stumbled across your Instagram account and I saw your just one challenge and your Gobi Moore. And I was like, I got to meet this guy. I think he's my person. I think he's like my person. (laughs) 
So um, I am, I am your person. <laughs> so to me, I mean, I just feel such a connection to this because I, I see that as something that speaks to every single person in this, you know, they have been, it's kind of like we talked about, you know, we've been covering for the last many minutes on this call. It's just your life is a series of events and experiences and people always will say, you've been given this for a reason. And, and I, I don't look at it exactly like that. I look at it like you have a choice in every situation. Mm-hmm. So this is the hand of cards you've been dealt. This is the hand of cards I've been dealt and I have a choice. And so mm-hmm. I can choose to do with that whatever I want. And I strongly believe that go be more is just, it can mean whatever it means to anybody at any point in time. It can mean go be more of an advocate for your child. It can be go be more and start a foundation. It can be go be more fit. And I just feel such a connection to that because of the way that it can translate into everybody's life and into be just what they need that to be. And the journey with nephrotic syndrome is so challenging that you really need to dig deep. You need to call on that strength and sometimes go be more, you know, sometimes what you're calling on yourself to do might just be to get in the shower that day. You know, I mean, you're, you're really, you just, you know, the parents who go through this truly carry so much. And so I just, I think that that myth, that um, motto has just got a lot to it. Oh, thanks a lot. And you're just going to be crying like a baby. (laughs) I'm I'm visualizing all these things that you're saying and stuff. And, and honestly, it, it's really hard for me to hear that stuff because that's what we're doing this for. Oh man. Like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know you did it to me earlier. I don't feel bad. Thanks <laughs> a lot. lot. Now, nah, this is what we're fighting for. I mean, I, I'm so grateful to Brian because he believed in me from the beginning, you know, when I was going through hell to even make this be possible, to even be here hearing you say what you're saying. It's like. I know we got some big things to do and I'm so grateful to have met you guys. I just. I really feel like this, you know, we, we don't have to do things the way that they've been done. You know, we can do it in our own way. We have to go be more. I mean, that's this, we're looking at the world as it is right now. And we all know it's a bunch of baloney. Like this is not okay. You know? And as I, I tell people all the time, I said, I'm willing to die for this thing, you know, because this is the answer. You know, we need each other. And yeah, there's we do. so much in all of us. We're so capable of so much. And I'm like, I'm tired of people buying into the idea, the excuse that we have to look look elsewhere. You know, like there's this amazing guy named Jeffrey Canada who, who's doing this amazing work over in New York in the New York City schools. And he's this beautiful black man. And, I, and he's this amazing documentary on him. And I bring him up only because of this quotation from the documentary, Waiting for Superman. And he tells yeah. this amazing story about how when he was a child, he, he loved Superman. And, he, and, and the reason why he loved Superman is because he said there was somebody out there with enough power to save us someday. And so this little black boy growing up in these really impoverished neighborhoods, he's like talking about Superman all the time to his mom. And if for some odd reason, his mom one day just tells him, honey, Superman's not real. And he said that he cried. And his mom thought he was crying because... It was like telling a kid to super Santa Claus isn't real or something like that. And it's like, that's not the reason why he said he cried. 
he cried because he was basically being told that there was nobody with enough power to come someday to come to, and save them. And I think that that's why this means so much to me is that I'm like, we are Superman. Yeah. We're not waiting for some superhero to come and save us. We're the ones. Yeah. All of us, you know, and I just, I feel like that's inside of all of us. And Andy, that's what you are. Like, you're like Superman to these families. You know, that's what you're doing. You know, they, they give me strength like every day. I just, I feel. Um, it's got to be amazing. You know, it's hard, but it's yeah. got to be amazing when they just tell you, thank you. And I know that yeah. they do because now they don't feel like they're alone. Yeah. You know, and it's like, that's what we need to do for each other. And, and that's why we want the world to see their greatness because goodness gracious, without it, if we can't do that and see it within ourselves, all these problems that we talk about solving, it's just a bunch of talk. Yeah. You know, we're the problem and we're also the solution. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, I don't know. It's just, your story's wonderful, Andy. And I love Aww, you. Thanks, I'm so John. glad that you connected with me and reached out to me, you and Jeremy. And I'm just so glad that we're connected, you know? Um, me too. I, got me I see big like things. like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, we, we know you guys have coming out soon you're going to have your podcast you're going to be doing even more we'll, we'll link up everything the, the nephrotic syndrome foundation probably people might not know how to spell it so i'll put it in the show notes for people. yeah that'd yeah. be awesome um, uh, we'll link up everything and andy thank you so much for joining us telling your story and it's really been a wonderful conversation for me i really appreciate it thank you thanks so okay. much brian i just i appreciate the opportunity and what you guys are doing just Keep up the good work. Thank you. All you right. too. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Andy. To learn more about NSF, check out the links in the show notes. A big thank you to Michelle at Creatives Collective Marketing for all the assistance with editing and show notes. Our next episode is with Bart Yasso, former chief running officer at Runner's World, who shares stories of a lifetime of running and community building. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Lastly, if you enjoy the pod, please help us out by giving us a review on iTunes. It makes a big difference, and to make it extra easy for you, I put a link to the reviews at the top of the show notes. For all of us at Go Be More, we are what the world is chasing, and we hope this podcast helps you become what the world is chasing too. Mm-hmm.